If you would, take your Bibles and go ahead and open to Romans chapter 14. Romans chapter 14, I want to look this morning at one of the marks of a healthy church member, a healthy believer, as we relate to one another, and that is this idea of deference. You know, there's a lot of things in life that you can learn, a great many things, really limitless things, but few things could it be said of that these are things that could save your life. Things that might well be used to literally stop some tragedy from occurring. You think about things in our physical lives. You can learn CPR. You can learn how to apply a tourniquet to someone who's bleeding profusely from a critical artery. Learn the Heimlich maneuver if someone is choking. There are things you can learn, and then there are things that you can learn that may well save yours or someone else's life. That's true in life in general, but the Christian life is no different. There are truths that are vital and truths that we can learn and truths that we need to learn that are helpful, that are true. And then there are some that are so critical that they literally may well save not only our spiritual health, but our spiritual life, and certainly the life as it is corporately put together within the church of Jesus Christ. It may well, if we learn some of these things, save us from destroying ourselves. And so this morning, as we come to Romans chapter 14, we find one of those life-saving passages as it relates to our body together. A life-saving passage. One that is spiritual CPR. One that is a spiritual tourniquet where there could be profuse bleeding. This passage may help in a variety of ways. And so Paul, writing to the Romans in Romans chapter 14, to the Roman Christians there, writes about this issue of Christian deference to one another. While on the path of life, on our way home to heaven, we wage battle for spiritual maturity, this one battlefield, this battlefield of deference may consume as much space and opportunity to grow in as just about any other that you can possibly imagine. And it is to that end that my heart as your pastor is directed this morning to look at and equip us and place tools in our collective tool bag as believers here at Colonial Bible Church that we might feel the Spirit's sense of conviction and instruction and be helped so when the time comes we might rightly apply what Paul teaches in Romans chapter 14. That we would be matured and that we would be strengthened because the honest reality is is that Paul addresses every single one of us in this passage. So 
So if you came here this morning and you thought, man, I hope Pastor Brian talks about something that I'm going to get to leave and go home and say, man, that was great for somebody else, but I'm thankful he didn't get on my feet this morning. You came on the wrong Sunday because none of us are leaving unscathed this morning. Every single one of us is going to be touched by what's said here. Everyone will be affected if you are a believer, will be affected by what Paul delivers to the Roman Christians here. Last week, we looked at the mark of fervent love for one another. another. Love one another fervently from a pure and a sincere heart we are instructed in the New Testament. Well, de- deference, where we are this morning, is love, that kind of love, put into action. It's love applied. It's not just saying that we love one another. It is acting as though that is the reality that we do love one another, even when some situations might be at their most difficult. So let's read now God's word, Romans chapter 14, the Apostle Paul's teaching. Now accept the one who is weak in faith but not for the purpose of passing judgment on his opinions. That he may eat, uh, I'm sorry, one person has faith that he may eat all things, but he who is weak eats vegetables only. The one who eats is not to regard with contempt the one who does not eat, and the one who does not eat is not to judge the one who eats, for God has accepted him. Who are you to judge the servant of another? To his own master, he stands or falls. And he will stand, for the Lord is able to make him stand. One person regards one day above another. Another regards every day alike. Each person must be fully convinced in his own mind. He who observes the day observes it for the Lord. And he who eats does so for the Lord. For he gives thanks to God, and he who eats not for the Lord, he does not eat and gives thanks to God. For not one of us lives for himself, and not one of us dies for himself. For if we live, we live for the Lord, or if we die, we die for the Lord. Therefore, whether we live or die, we are the Lord's. For to this end, Christ died and lived again, that he might be both Lord, Lord both of the living and of the dead. But you, why do you judge your brother? Or you again, why do you regard your brother with contempt? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. For it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me, and every tongue shall give praise to God. So then, each one of us will give an account of himself to God. Therefore, let us not judge one another any more. But rather determine this, not to put an obstacle or a stumbling block in a brother's way. I know and am convinced in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself. But to him who thinks anything to be unclean, to him it is unclean. For if because of food your brother is hurt, you are no longer walking according to love. Do not destroy with your food him for whom Christ died. Therefore, do not let what is for you a good thing be spoken of as evil. 
For the kingdom of God is not eating and drinking, but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. For he who in this way serves Christ is acceptable to God and approved by men. So then we pursue the things which make for peace and the building up of one another. Do not tear down the work of God for the sake of food. All things are indeed clean, but they are evil for the man who eats and gives offense. It is good not to eat meat or to drink wine or to do anything by which your brother stumbles. The faith which you have, have as your own conviction before God. Happy is he who does not condemn himself in what he approves. But he who doubts is condemned if he eats, because he is eating, because his eating is not from faith. And whatever is not from faith is sin. Father, help us now as we look into your word. Give us clarity that in the Spirit's hand would produce maturity that we might, in fervent love for one another, learn what it is to defer and thus maintain what the kingdom of God is really about, love and joy, peace and righteousness, so that we would be a testament and a glory to you in all that we do. In Jesus' name, amen. There are enough personal convictions represented in the room this morning enough common convictions and preferences that were we all to be taken out and airdropped onto a deserted island somewhere, which sounds pretty good some days, right? There are enough shared common preferences and convictions among us that we could potentially, theoretically, be dropped onto an island and live in perfect harmony for generations to come. But the reality and the other side of that coin is this, that there are enough differences in our preferences and even certain convictions that we could be dropped on a deserted island and have every possibility of fracturing to the point that we all die alone. And this must never be allowed. The church of Jesus Christ must never allow itself to be penetrated by individual thinking in such a way that it would fracture and destroy us. The Apostle Paul here gives us three phases to develop a biblical understanding about the grace of deferring to one another. I want to look at those with you this morning as I've said several times throughout this brief little interlude and series in between chapters in John's gospel, that these are helpful things for us to think about and to cultivate and to begin to adapt into our thinking while there are no storm surges on the sea, while life appears to be calm and while we are living in harmony with one another, it's good to be reminded that we have an enemy who would love to destroy that. And come against this body of believers and fracture us. And so this principle of love, as we discussed last week, works itself out so many times through this area of deference to one another in a biblical way. So as to preserve the joy and the peace and the righteousness and the the cohesiveness of the body of Christ. And so first of all, I want you to look in verses 1 through 9 with me, and we'll have to move quickly this morning 
to cover this entire chapter, but I think it's best covered for our purpose this morning in one sitting. We've taken our time when we went all the way through the entire book of Romans in the past and took weeks to do this. You can go back and listen to that in more detail on the website if you so desire, but it's good to be reminded in summary fashion by looking at the whole picture this morning. And so we find the principle of deference listed for us in verses 1 to 9. The old British theologian and and preacher, wonderful preacher and expositor, who now home with the Lord, John Murray, said that Romans 14 is concrete and practical Christian living. This is concrete and practical. This is where, in other words, all of the doctrine we profess, this is where that rubber of that doctrine meets the, the, the literal road of living together. This is where it fleshes out, and this is where it plays out. And in the first nine verses of this chapter, the Apostle Paul, under the inspiration of God's Spirit, gives us a governing principle. A governing principle that reaches its summit in verse 4. Look at verse 4 with me. And here it is. Who are you to judge the servant of another? To his own master, he stands or falls, and he will stand, for the Lord is able to make him stand. This is the the summit of the principle. We belong to the Lord. And in matters of deference, in matters of differing opinions, where it is not in clear violation of Scripture, where God has made room for there to be differences, we are not to judge one another as we are the Lord. And that's the point here. Paul is dealing with a church who are judging one another in such a way that they are placing themselves in the position of Christ and rendering final verdicts. And Paul says, that is not any of your prerogatives. You're the Lord's servant. Who are you to judge the servant of another? Put it in a human term. Not one of you has the right to discipline my children. They are my children. We have given our children specific instructions about how they are to live their life. It's not for you to come rewrite the rules of our home, nor mine to rewrite the rules of your home. And we don't do that, would we? Why would we think of someone who, you know... uh, if the grocery store doesn't like something going on and just pulls a child aside and starts to administer discipline, we would say, whoa, who do you think you are? That's my child. I told them to go do that. I gave them permission to go there or to do this or to do that. Who do you think you are? I'm the parent. And that's Paul saying we all belong to the Lord. So who are we to judge As if we are the Lord. He is the master. He is the sovereign. And so that's the crowning principle of Scripture. And does that mean everything's open for discussion and we just live and let live? No, there are clearly guidelines. But within the guidelines, there are room for disagreement about certain things. And this is where Paul is governing. He's not governing what is outside the boxing ring. He's governing governing what's inside. And what's inside is controlled by the Lord. That is 
the principle. But I want you to first, or secondly, I want you to notice that Paul addresses two categories of people here in Romans chapter 14. He addresses one who is strong, and he addresses one who is weak. Let's define those. Because they're not derogatory terms. Paul is simply delineating two groups of people that he wishes to address because in our body this morning, there are strong and there are weak. That, that's any church. That's any group of, you take any group of believers and you put them in a room and you're going to have these two categories flesh out over one issue one way or the other. The one who is strong in Paul's teaching here is the Christian who understands who he is in Christ. He strengthened his assurances in Christ and he is not burdened by a stringent set of legalities. He is freed by Christ from his sin for eternal life and he is not trying to earn favor with God by a a set of legalities that he must keep. That's a glorious way to live. I cannot please God any more than his son Jesus Christ has pleased him. The strong understands that. The strong understands that that God can never love him more and never love him less if he is in Christ because God has perfectly loved his son. This is the strong man. He is convinced of that. His conscience is well informed. And like the Jewish people who would make up part of this church, they may have been plagued, although they were well-intentioned, they were plagued by past codes of conduct, past days of celebration, past dietary restrictions, and so on and so forth. Even some of the pagans who had come from some of the pagan religions are plagued by the same traditions and cultures. And Paul says the strong man isn't bothered by those things. He's not weighed down by them. His focus is upon the Lord and his position in the Lord and to be pleasing to the Lord in such a way that he is concerned with the things that matter, not a list of do's and don'ts. You can and can't do this. This is the strong man, strong in his conscience, strong in his assurance of who he is in Christ, and not burdened by extraneous things. The second person Paul mentions here is the weak. And the weak is still a Christian brother. This in no way communicates that he is unsaved, that he is outside of the faith. No, he is absolutely inside the faith. He is a brother to the strong. He is absolutely within the family of God. But this weaker brother, although entirely sincere, is one who is easily offended because he has such a fastidious list of legalities that he must keep in order to make God pleased with him, he is always burdened and easily offended. And this has been my experience, and probably yours as well, that the longer the list of legalities one must keep in order to be right with God, the more easily offended you are. 
Because you're living by rule and not by principle. You're living by do's and don'ts rather than a relationship with Jesus Christ. And this weaker brother, although entirely sincere, is one easily offended. He's worried about everything. He's one who potentially could be caused to violate his own conscience because his own conscience hasn't fully matured in his growth and understanding of certain issues and thinks about them therefore wrongly according to past traditions, according to preferences, according to otherwise wrongly conceived applications of truth. And he can be not only offended, but the weaker brother could actually be led to sin. And that's what Paul goes to in the second half of this chapter. This is not just, well, you're doing something I don't like, you have to stop. This is, he actually goes back on his faith, and leaves the faith and apostatizes into sin. That's the real concern with this brother. That being unformed and immature in his fully formed and matured Christian life, he could be caused to stumble. And stumble doesn't mean, well, I don't like that. Stumbling is actually causing him to go into actual sin. And Paul says you can't do that to them. They are your brother. You must Defer to him as well as he must defer to you. And so the principle to govern our definite deference to one another, strong to weak and weak to strong, is rooted in this command that Paul gives. Paul begins by addressing the strong. Those Christians who are secure, they're assured, their conscience is matured, it is, it is tender yet robust. Notice how Paul begins... He says to the strong, now accept the one who is weak in faith. The the word to accept means to welcome him wholeheartedly. Not to begrudgingly. All right. I guess. If you have to. It's like the kids on the playground at school. It comes down to the last one and nobody wanted to pick the last guy. And you say, okay. We'll take so-and-so, right? You remember. Paul says that's not how you treat the weaker brother. If you're the stronger brother, you run over and you pick him first. You hug his neck. You say, welcome to the team. Here's a jersey. Come on in. We're all in this together. And you show a a fervent love for this weaker brother. the, The word literally means to show hospitality in one's own home. You're to make them part of your life. You're to receive the weaker one, one whose faith may falter at any given moment. You are to receive him, love him, care for him. And this is critical. Again, let me say this. This is not just you have done something against what I like. You're actually This brother is in danger of actual sin. And I'll say more about that in a moment. But keep that in your mind. Because I've heard all kinds of crazy things, Romans 14, thrown at those things. Well, you don't, you you have to use the version of the Bible I like because that version is my, I'm the weaker brother, you've offended me. 
So me using the NASB over, I don't know, I'm just making things up now, over the ESV, now you're, you're going to go sin because of that? That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about actual sin, offense, abandoning the faith. That's going to cause you to do that. Or you have to do this, or you have to, no, these are real issues. So keep that in mind. The strong are to enthusiastically receive the weaker into their inner circle and into their life. And then Paul gives a caveat. Notice what he says. Not for the purpose of passing judgments on his opinion. Have you ever been invited by someone? They call you up and say, hey, we'd like you to come over for dinner tonight. You know, come on over, bring your wife, and we just want to have you guys over for dinner. And man, just we hadn't seen you guys in a while, it'd be great. And you walk in, and the Amway salesman is there. For those of you older, you'll remember Amway. They've invited you over, not because they missed you, but because you need to become part of their pyramid scheme to sell some. How do, how do I mean, we laugh because... We've all probably been there. How do you feel about that? Well, you feel offended. You feel used. And Paul says, when you invite the weaker brother into your life and into your home, you don't do it. Say, come on, I just want to love on you a little bit. And he gets there and goes, now let me set you straight. I'm going to tell you where you're wrong. I'm just going to, here's the list. Paul says, you don't. Invite them in for the purpose of passing that kind of judgment on them. You have them because they are your brother and because you fervently love them, genuinely so. And you don't make their opinions the target of your judgment. One dictionary defines this quite interestingly. To pass judgment here means literally... To engage in verbal conflict over differing viewpoints. I'm going to have you over to fight. You didn't know this. But I'm going to have you over. Strong's concordance that many of you probably have on your shelf defines the word this way. To dispute doubtful imagination and reasoning. A debate. The strong aren't here to pass judgment on the weaker brother. Even though he may not be right in the way he sees things, it is not your position to sit there and set him straight, Paul says. Paul now gives the first example. He said the weaker brother, he he only eats vegetables. I'll leave that where it is. The weaker brother only eats vegetables. This is probably a conscientious Jew who felt strongly that it was wrong to eat meat. Okay. You don't want to eat meat? That's fine. No problem. Could have been a pagan like Paul writes to. And there is a difference between this and the the account in, in Corinth. Because it's not here. It's just generalized. It's a diet. For one example, a day as another example. But in Corinth, the issue was meat offered to idols. Meat offered to idols was different. It was 
sold in the perverted and immoral temples of the sexually illicit worship of all their false gods, and that's where you went to buy meat. And so many believers said, we don't eat meat because we're not going to where you have to go to buy the meat. And if I do go, I'm a new believer, I'm weak in my faith, I may be tempted to go back into that for just a moment. And Paul says, look, if, if you offering them a steak is going to cause them to have to go back through that and relive that and potentially get sucked back into that, don't do it. Okay, no problem. You eat vegetables only, that's not a problem to me. I'll make vegetable stew. Dietary adherence to this week or brother is apparently a cardinal rule of the faith for them. And so Paul says, don't make them eat meat. Now, does Paul tell the stronger brother, you can't have steak? No. But he also says, don't make them eat meat. Don't pass judgment on that. Don't force them into this. The strong in conscience understand the place of the dietary law in Israel's past. But they are perfectly free in Christ, in their conscience, to have Roman barbecue. Not a problem. It's just meat. It's just vegetables. But you are never to look down on the one who doesn't eat your barbecue. And the one who only eats the vegetables is never to judge you for eating your steak. It's not for the purpose of judgment. They are to be received and treated as family. They're not to condemn even in their own mind, even their own thinking. Notice Paul doesn't give the strict parameters of what this judgment would look like. And this is where it becomes convicting. Okay, on the outside I'll tolerate, but inside I just know they're wrong. And I know that my way is superior. You know, and bless their heart, I'm just going to pray for them. I'm going to put them on the prayer chain. They need, they need a little help. And we begin to develop this pious and cynical and critical way of thinking of others because they eat vegetables. So what? They eat vegetables. You're not to pass judgment on them. Paul doesn't say it's outward judgment with your words. You don't think it. It's comprehensive. And the other way is true too. Don't Regard with contempt the one who does not eat and the one who does not eat is not to judge past condemnation on the one who does eat for God has accepted him. God's accepted both. But very specifically, very tellingly, it's the strong here that Paul is saying God's accepted him. In my experience, there, there's far more of the weak judging the strong than the strong judging the weak in the churches that I've been a part of. And again, the weak are often robed in great intentions that very easily can slip into 
robes of pious and smug attitudes about their perception of what holiness is. And it becomes very hurtful and harmful, and they they begin to pull back from people who don't do life just like them. And the conversations get awkward, and the feelings begin to get hurt, and there begins to be division and cracks. They begin to be critical, if not verbally, certainly in the mind, and then that critical spirit eventually bleeds over into outward action. They just don't love Jesus. I'm going to pray they do. They're just immature because they had a stake. I'm going to, you know, I'm really going to pray for them. Might even buy them some vegetable seeds for Christmas this year. Just to get the point across, you know, because they need to be godly. Down south, we might even say, well, bless their heart. Paul's emphatically communicating something here the weak ones need to develop their conscience see paul doesn't say it's okay for you to be weak and act however you want because you're weak you need to grow up you need to inform the conscience you need to strengthen your understanding about what it really means and what really matters Never forget, early on, and I mean early on, the first year or two of my ministry, an older man came to, uh, came to our church and he said, listen, I'm a retired pastor from a certain tradition, and I don't like your music. Well, okay. You see, you need to sing the songs that I sang in my tradition. Well, we're not that tradition. We're not of that persuasion. Yeah, but, but you should. Okay. And you not only have to sing it, you have to sing from the songbook that my denomination produced. Okay, so we sang one of his songs one Sunday, and he came back the next Sunday. He's like, wasn't good enough. What do you mean, wasn't good enough? You can't use any instruments. It's got to be a cappella or it doesn't work. It's no good. Why? And he goes through this long, contorted view of the Old Testament of why that's the case and so on and so forth. And I said, you know, we're not of your denominational persuasion. We're not from that tradition. You know, sorry. And, and, and he said this to me, but I'm the weaker brother in that case then. So that's going to make you sin. Well, you need to do it because... When all else failed, the weaker brother card. Now, the reality for him was he needed to inform his conscience. He needed to to mature. Eventually laughed because he could never develop his conscience. He refused to mature. And he he was trying to force everyone in church to do it his way or else he was going to leave. It's kind of like the kid in the neighborhood so if you don't do it my way i'm gonna take my ball and go home there's other balls you know i mean paul says listen you can't pass god's accepted the brother eating meat and who are you if god's accepted him who are you to reverse the 
decision. This is not the United States legal system where we have one judge who takes joy in overturning the other judge and back and forth it goes. Also, this is not the way the Christian life is to be lived. And that will destroy the church. Whether it's the strong judging the weak or the weak judging the strong, that's not how God intends it. And let's be honest. We're all tempted to do this. I'm glad you feel strongly about your convictions. Praise God for that. I don't want you all to be, well, I don't know, nothing really matters. Everything's up for grabs. No. Know what you believe and why you believe it. But when there is disagreement outside, again, these are not clear doctrinal issues we're dealing with. This is not the virgin birth. This is not the inerrancy of Scripture. Paul makes that clear. This is what you eat and when you celebrate. These, are, these aren't even secondary issues. They're falling off the bottom of the page. Who are you then to judge? But yet we so often succumb to this. Why? God accepted and what God accepted. We say this in, in, in wedding ceremonies. What God has joined together, let no man put asunder. But just tack that on here as an application. What God has accepted, who are we to say can't be that way? There's a guard for the stronger brother here and a rebuke to the weaker brother. If God has accepted, you may not reject. Notice what Paul says. Who are you to judge the servant of another? To his own master, His master sets the standard, and to his own master he will stand or fall. And oh, by the way, weaker brother, your stronger brother will stand, because the Lord has made him stand. That's Jude 24. Did you die to make this brother righteous and accepted by God? No, then you can't say anything. Did you inform his conscience? Are you the Holy Spirit, in other words? No, then you have no right to judge. Have you sealed him for the day of redemption to keep him and bring him all the way home and cause him to persevere in the faith? No, then you can't judge. The reality is that this is God's prerogative. He is the Lord. He has caused him to stand. And only his judgment will be rendered in a way that matters. He will stand for the Lord will make him stand. John Murray says this, The weak tended to regard the exercise of liberty on the part of the strong as a falling down in their devotion to Christ and as therefore subjecting them to the Lord's disapproval. I just feel so sorry for them. God's not happy with them. And God's as pleased as pie with them. Well, I guess they don't love Jesus as much as I thought they did. No, they actually do. And God is satisfied with them and they are satisfied in God. And that's probably why their conscience is strong. Because they're not sitting there with all of the list of things that make God happy with them. Those kind of people are miserable. The one who's assured is joy-filled and at peace and isn't thinking of such things. The Lord, by His grace and His work, makes the strong to stand. And oh, by the way, He'll make the weak to stand too. 
Both lose out, both strong and weak, of the joy of growing to be like Jesus and even enjoying each other's presence when these attitudes of disapproval and disdain and judgment enter the mind. We just kind of naturally pull back a little bit. Put on that fake smile. Rather than saying, praise God. I'm glad you could go down to the meat market and get some barbecue for your family. That's wonderful. I hope you guys have a great time. I hope you enjoy one another's coming. I hope you, I hope you give glory to God with every bite you eat. And no, I don't think you're falling away because you had a pork chop. In fact, I know you're not. Because the Lord makes you stand. Jude 24, now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling. Not your list of things you do and don't do. That's not what makes you refrain from stumbling. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling. And to make you stand. The very verbiage of Paul in Romans 14. To make you stand in the presence of His glory, blameless with great joy, to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory and majesty, dominion and authority before all time, now and forever. Amen. God has accepted both. And now we need to imitate God. As Jesus loved and as Jesus accepted, so must we. Strong, don't despise the weak. Weak, don't judge the strong. The the, the word judge here, Murray defines as censorious scrutiny. Let's put it in modern vernacular. Cancel culture. Censorious scrutiny. Blot. On the texting group. Blocked on social media. He goes on to say that this censorious judgment is the vice of the weak. Don't do that to each other. It's not a mark of strength. That's a mark of weakness. To treat other Christians this way. The second example Paul gives in the following verses is of apparently... Special holidays, not just food, but friction created over holidays, days of special celebration or religious meaning. The weak are fastidious in Paul's example in keeping them. The strong can take it or leave it. Well, where were you at the feast of whatever? Oh, man, I don't know. The kids fishing. You mean you 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 mean you do? Not celebrate X? No. It's never been a big deal to us. You know, I'm not from around here. Didn't grow up Jewish. It's not an important thing for us. Remember, I'm, I'm from down south of Rome a little bit. We never even heard of that. Well, you better celebrate. This was the Galatian heresy. Oh, you had not been circumcised? You better get circumcised. You don't celebrate this? You better start celebrating that. You don't do this? You better do this? You better do that. And the Galatian... Gentile bullet, what are you talking about? You mean that's required to be right with God? Yes, it is. Bring out the knives. 
Paul says, whoa, there needs to be a knife used, but it's not on the Gentiles. It's on the Jews, the weak-minded. I wish they would go not circumcise themselves, castrate themselves. So don't put the knife up just yet. Paul was serious because it's causing friction and it would ultimately cause some to fall away from the faith. So Paul really has no tolerance for this. Look, it's just a day. It's just a day. Keep it or not keep it. It's fine, whatever. The key to unlock the interaction here is that both are doing it as to the Lord. Look what he says. He observes the day, observes it for the Lord. Praise the Lord. And the one who doesn't, eats not, does it for the Lord. Praise the Lord. And the one who does eat and doesn't partake of the day, they do it for the Lord. Praise the Lord. There's nothing that says you have to do this. Well, you know, if we take X plus Y, it means Z. And Z is the first letter of the... Have you heard these kind of explanations? Well, if you do this, then that is this, and that, that must minus this plus that. And it's almost like a mathematical calculus equation. And they get around to saying, and that's why you must do what I say you should do. Oh, please. That's not in Scripture. We deal in things that are clear and plain. We don't add weird formulas to things and come up. No. They do it to the Lord. Well, praise the Lord. You know, you want to go down on, I don't know, whatever date is to have a feast? Praise the Lord. We're going to sleep, get a little rest. We don't have to work that day. Okay. Praise the Lord. You guys enjoy your rest. We're going down to the feast. We'll see you when we get back. Great. Love you. Love you too, brother. We do it to the Lord. The weak are not wrong for abstaining. The strong are not wrong for partaking. They both believe they honor the Lord. And that's the key. How can I honor the Lord best? And see, here's where particularly I fear the weak get on the strong. Well, I need to tell them how to honor the Lord. And if I let them do that, I mean, yeah, that might not be sin. But if I let that go then that's going to insert mathematical equation of where this leads, and then they'll be in sin. Well, no, because they both want to honor the Lord. That'll keep both of them on the rail. That's the key. A a mature believer does not in any way want to dishonor the Lord. And so they will walk according to their conscience through whom the Spirit informs and that will keep them from sin. Well, I need to keep them from sin. I give them my formula. And Paul says it's ridiculous. Do it for the Lord and all is well. So don't despise the conviction of the other as they are exercising and working out in their own life how Christ's lordship, and that's key here, Christ's lordship affects everything. This is a principle we must remember. Christ is Lord. And under his lordship and seeking to please him in everything as the spirit leads us, we possess a glorious individual liberty. And that's what I wanted to hear. Yes. But also a glorious accountability to him. 
There's a tension. There is liberty, but it is not liberty without accountability. So take both into consideration. The lordship of Christ reigns over both. Past that, as long as it's not a clear violation of Scripture and it's not clearly sin, do your business and stay out of others. If it isn't causing others to sin, it's not our problem. And by sin, I mean sin. Clearly violating what is wrong. What is clearly revealed in Scripture. Preferences and preconceived ideas about food, holidays, or anything else can be violated. Christ's lordship matters and it matters in matters of Christian liberty, of conscience, of action. All of that matters. Who are you to place yourself in position as Lord over someone else and sit in judgment on their poor decisions according to what you think you know? You know, I wonder what God thinks of us when we pray to him about certain people or situations with that attitude. Oh, Lord, you know how poor their decision is. Rebuke them. And God said, what's the problem? I don't have a problem. Why do you have a problem? Are you me? Have you put yourself in the place of me? Are, they, are these people your people? Are you responsible for them? Are you loving them like my son loved them? Did you die for them? Well, no. Uh, then end of story. Christ's lordship. Christ is Lord and he makes them stand. If we live, we live for the Lord. If we die, we die for the Lord. Therefore, whether we live or die, we are the Lord's. For again, to this end, Christ died and lived again that he might be Lord both of dead and of the living. How many times do we have to say it? The lordship of Christ reigns supreme. Quickly, the prospect of deference. The prospect has already been alluded to, but it is certain accountability. Here's what keeps all of us in check. Every single one of us will appear before the judgment. And every one of us will give an account of himself to God. If we take that seriously as we should, then none of us is going to lightly, trivially walk into sin. I'm not going to want to do something that will place me out of fellowship with the Lord. Not out of salvation, but interrupt our fellowship. I want to do what is pleasing in His sight. And so, there's the prospect of judgment of God examining us, and He will. So let every man, as Paul's going to end, let every man be fully convinced in his own mind, governed by the prospect that he will be responsible for what he does. It's a marvel that so many of us get so wrapped up in what others do or how they're doing it, when in reality, on the day that we stand before God, all of us will have more to answer for than we will know what to do with. That's the reality. We have plenty to think about on our own without worrying about one another. Because every one of us, and I think in our pride, here's where our pride comes in. I think in our pride, all of us are prone to this. All of us 
Well, I'll just have a lot less to answer for on that day because I do fill-in formula. Mine will be a really short meeting. God, I only need a five-minute time slot. Brother so-and-so may need a little longer. So have, you know, Gabriel schedule according. That's our mindset. When in reality, we will all be laid low. All of us. The prospect of God judging my judging is not one I look forward to. See, God's not just going to judge whether you ate meat or vegetables. He's going to judge the fact that you judged one who did. That's not real comforting. Because that's not the instruction that I was given. And I am accountable for what I'm given. We need to be careful, brothers and sisters. Guard our heart, guard our minds. Judging in this way is holding. Am I saying, oh, Brian, you've gone soft. You know, going full-blown woke on us here. No judging. Accept everything. That's not what I said. Judgmentalism is when I create the standard and then I hold you to my standard. Discernment is when we open the word of God together and hold both of ourselves accountable to this. There's a difference. This is not judge that, not that you be not judged. That's not what this is. This is let it be here. And if it's not here, we dismiss it. But if it is, we take it seriously. And not doing this to weak or strong, strong or weak, is one of those things that is clearly there. How we live matters. And Paul will make that more than clear. But also how we live in relation to one another also matters. I want you to lastly, very quickly, consider the project of deference. What's our project? Now, Paul's been pretty hard on the weak. Been pretty thorough with the weak up to this point. He started with the strong. He went straight then to the weak. He's been after the weak. He has been telling the guys, you have to live with an informed conscience as under the Lord, under the Lordship of Christ. And now he goes back to the project of deference to the strong. Therefore, let us not judge one another anymore, but rather determine this, not to put an obstacle or a stumbling block in a brother's way. And again, this is not a stumbling block of, I don't like that. I don't like that style. I don't like that version. I don't like whatever. This is leading someone to abandon the faith, to sin knowingly against God. While wrongful judgmentalism by the weak towards the strong is a problem and it's a temptation in all of us, it's a very very real possibility that there could be those who are strong who run roughshod over people and cause them to sin. That's a possibility too, just as real. That's a real issue for the Corinthian believers. There were Corinthian believers who were causing weaker brothers, new believers who couldn't handle going to get the stake without 
going back into temple prostitutes. Paul says, don't you dare eat a steak if that's what they're going to do when you send them to pick one up on the way to your house. You stay away from that. Don't don't hurt them. Don't harm them. It's more specific than this, but tender conscience on the strong believer's part will not only rejoice in his liberty, he will rejoice in his ability to protect the weaker brother. Let's put it back in the Romans 12 context. You have me over to your house, you eat vegetables only, I'll eat a salad, I will smile with you, I will love you, I will rejoice from you, and on the way home, when you're not with me, I'm going to Outback. (laughs) But you're not going into sin, and I'm not violating the accountability and liberty I have before God. I I can live in both of these realities. And Paul says, if you're the stronger brother, you must. We know, Paul says, verse 14, we know nothing is unclean. It's just meat. It's just a day. It's just whatever. Quit living like you worship a formula and a list. But if, because of food, your brother is hurt, scandalized, caused to go into sin... You are no longer walking according to love. And all that ought to pierce our hearts. Because we are to love fervently like the Savior. Tender consciences hate what the meat markets mean to those who've just come out of them and been hurt by them. To encourage them to partake in something that could lead them back into actual sin. We would not want that. Were we to lead in our perfect liberty someone into actual sin, we are culpable, responsible for that. Paul uses the word again, stumbling block, to scandalize them. Avoid scandal, Paul is saying. With great confidence, using the perfect tense of the word, Paul again asserts the lordship of Christ. Nothing is unclean in and of itself. It's what you do with it. It's how your conscience allows you to interact with it. It's just meat. It's just a 24-hour cycle. But if it causes one to deny the Lordship of Christ, to go back into sin, you should not. Why? Because you value the very sheep Christ gave His life for. And you desire in no way to hurt them, only to help them. We can't demand other people follow our weaknesses, our uninformed parts of our conscience, but nor can we run roughshod over them, nor can we mock them, nor can we disdain them, nor can we treat them as second class, whatever the case may be. It's not worth one person falling away. It's not worth one person being hurt to deny their faith. What we are after, (coughs) Paul says, is this, right? This is what the kingdom of God is. Verse 17, it's not eating and it's not drinking. It is righteousness. It's peace. 
It's joy in the Holy Spirit. That's what we're after. So, believer, fellow church member at Colonial Bible Church, are you willing to do this? Pursue that which leads to righteousness and joy and peace. Will you protect one another? And will you love one another enough to let one another live? Instead of demanding our way, we seek ways to make peace that actually build the weaker into the stronger. Because we point to Christ, we point to his lordship, we point to him as supreme. We rely on the Holy Spirit to develop our consciences and turn off horns. It's a truth of conscience that we can or can't do certain things, that we desire certain things, not only for ourselves, but for others. We, we have to love one another in this way. If your brother's weak, don't invite him over on July 4th for a barbecue. And just because you eat vegetables, don't go setting up surveillance cameras in HEB's meat aisle. (laughs) Looking for each other to buy that steak. Protect one another. And Paul ends this way, be fully persuaded in your own mind. Giving thanks to God, loving your brother, be fully persuaded. Happy, he says in verse 22, is he who does not condemn himself in what he approves. But he who doubts is condemned if he eats because he is eating not from faith. And what not, whatever is not from faith is sin, be fully persuaded. Know what you believe and know why you believe this is the right or wrong thing to do. And then go for it. Under the lordship of Jesus Christ. With joy in your heart, giving thanks to God. And if others don't join you because they can't, don't look down on each other. Continue to love each other. Continue to strengthen one another. Continue to love fervently. Loving Christian lives life like this. They first strengthen themselves in Christ. And then they trust that the love of God through the Holy Spirit will cause their spiritual siblings to be able to do what is right as well. Dwell in the unity of these truths. These truths are spiritual CPR to a church. They're a tourniquet that can stop the bleeding These are literally life-saving principles for the Christian community. Let's pray and ask that the Lord would help us all to be sensitive and tender to these things in order to carry out what really matters, an exaltation of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. I pray that you would richly instruct all of our hearts and minds through it, cause us to be joyful not chafed because of one another. May we 
live so under the lordship of Jesus Christ, rejoicing in him. May we live with accountability that we will give an answer, not for one another, but for ourselves. So let that be the balance to the joy and the freedom that we have in Christ, knowing that you see and know the heart as well as the actions. May all that we think and do be acceptable and pleasing in your sight. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.